things they're thinking at this moment. Those are really the verses we're going to hear on a child dedication. Cutting off hands, cutting off heads, and, and all that stuff. And that is kind of where I was, to be completely honest with you guys. I said, man, that's, that's kind of a bold uh, story to, to read. Maybe we'll just kind of skip over that. And, and then I thought, you know, a lot of the lessons are, are very mimicked off of how David has handled previous stuff. But God wouldn't let me leave that chapter. And that's not where all your lessons are coming from today. But here's why I wanted to read it, and here's why I think it just happens. You know, we use that God sent us word around here. It just happened to fall on this Sunday. Because every time I read that chapter, here's the first thing that came to my mind. Saul's son was a quitter. He was a quitter. The very beginning, it said he realized Abner was no more. He depended on Abner. He realized Abner was no more, and he gave up. He surrendered. And then I started thinking, I said, do we really want to raise quitters in today's world, we have too many of those as there is. I mean, you look at society, you look at the, the way children are, are being raised and the older they get and the way they become. And we deal with a lot of the problems we have because they haven't been raised the right way and they quit too early. So and that, and that directly is a result of the way Saul's son was raised. He was an illegitimate child. He wasn't raised by his dad, so he had no dad present. He was raised by somebody else, somebody else who ended up not being a very godly man, who we've looked at for many weeks, who was very, very evil. Uh, and because of that, the minute that poor influence left that he was relying on, so he wasn't built, he wasn't trained, use that word trained, he wasn't trained to rely on God, he was trained to rely on Abner, and the minute Abner's gone, he's out, he's done, he gives up. But David, a guy who wasn't raised after this official title of, of a king or, or anything like that, but had a good godly influence in his growing up, a dad who disciplined him, a dad who who obviously made him work for a living. That's why he's out there tending to the sheep all the time and is in his early days. You know, he had responsibilities. That's why he took his brothers to lunchboxes uh, at the Battle of Goliath. And so he had all these responsibilities. He was instilled. He was taught to grow up a certain way. When he hits adversity and when he has tough things to deal with, maybe uh, approaching a guy who's been trying to kill you, maybe uh, people thinking they were doing something good for you, which was evil against the Lord, uh, constantly, David says, you know what? I'm going to follow the ways of Scripture. I'm going to follow the ways uh, of the Lord. And despite whatever human teaching, despite whatever human emotion I've got going, I'm going to do this thing God's way. So so th- there is, is chapter 4 wrapped up as fast as you could possibly wrap it up. And I'm sure we're going to come back. We know we'll come back to uh, Jonathan's son uh, in chapter 9. So, so there'll be more from it. But I just want to make sure we understand like just how neat it is that God has lined up where we would be today uh, for you guys, that we are not to be raising quitters. We are to be raising children, men, women, future, boys, girls, uh, that are going to be able to handle the things the world is going to throw at them because we want them to succeed. We want them to not follow the ways of the world and, and human emotion. We want them to follow the Lord, most importantly. And I hope that's what we, we've agreed to uh, as parents. And if not, nobody's making you take your plaque at the end uh, and say, I do, when we get to the end of this thing. So here's where we want to be. And uh, plus, I think for, for six, our four families and six children uh, to want to take today to do that, we deserve as a church body uh, to kind of take a break from our series, to kind of take a break and say, you know what, we want to honor them. One, because they've chosen to do this in front of us and make these vows and commitments. But two, uh, they're going to need us. Uh, parenting is hard. Um, you know, I know some of you out there are the perfect parent. Um, I tried and I failed uh, three times. So uh, and then I gave up. We're not having any more. So uh, we just you just have to have an unperfect parent. Sorry, guys, um, my children. So 
Uh, you got this. You're not going to hear perfect advice um, today. You're just going to hear what Scripture says uh, to us. But, you know, so you say, well, why are we doing today? And you made a point at the beginning of saying today doesn't save our children. No, today doesn't save your children. Really, a child dedication is more so for the parents and the body of Christ uh, than anything else. Sure, we will ask a blessing over your child. And, and I believe God takes this stuff serious. Um, you look at when they wanted to send the little children to Jesus and his disciples were like, no, he's got too much going on. Uh, Jesus looked at him very clearly and said, no, you let the little children come to me. Uh, all in the Old Testament, we have parents who, who sought the will of God and blessed their children. And some gave their children literally right back to God. Uh, Jesus's parents, we know, had him at the temple. So so the fact of, of doing this is very much right. But I want to make sure we have the right understanding of it. Uh, your child's not getting baptized today. Uh, your family members not, you know, none of that. We're making an oath before God that we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that our child is raised in a world that may be corrupt, but in a way in which they can hold to the word of God when those corruptions come at them in this world today. And, and if you're not doing today and you're still a parent, well, I'm, I got a lot of advice out of the day, so I'm hoping it would still apply to us as well. Okay. So let's jump into this thing. Um, in the beginning, Genesis 1, 28, Adam and Eve, they're made. And the, one of their first commandments God gives, a look on the screen or in your word. And he looks at him in verse 28, at the very beginning, he says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God had an expectation of Adam and Eve. And that expectation before they sinned, before they fell and made their mistakes, whatever, was to have children and with their children rule the earth. Okay, so so keep that in mind. That's at the very, very beginning of everything. When, when God is as, as he's establishing his kingdom and when his kingdom comes to full pass, he wants us and our children to be equipped and, and ready to handle this and, and rule the earth the way it's supposed to be. So we, we've got that at the very beginning of Scripture in the Old Testament. Multiple stories of women who desired children because it was a blessing from God, having their joy when they had that child, seeing their children walk and serve God and, and repeatedly goes back. Uh, to looking at them and how pleased they were as a parent that they made those, those commitments and that vow. And then you get this guy, Moses. Now, Moses's mother, she had three children, Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Uh, they were part of the tribe of Levi, which operates as the, the priests of the Israelites. Uh, so it made sense that they grew up with an understanding of God. That they were trained and taught uh, with Scripture. Scripture tells us this, though, in their story, that Aaron and Miriam, they, they walked with God at an early age. They had positive things going for them. They started out right. But then there's this guy, Moses, that I think a lot of us have heard of. But here's what happened with him. He was in his late 70s before he ever came to even thinking about his call from God. So he waited a really long time to catch on to what I'm sure his, his mom had taught, to what the Lord had been, been given a call on him and, and his, his upbringing and all that. And then he turns 80, and that's when he finally brings the children out of Israel. And here's what he says as he writes in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse nine, he says, only give heed to yourself and to keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Moses is saying this. We have a responsibility as the children of God to teach history to our children, to teach them the ways of, of, of Yahweh, to teach them what scripture says, to teach them and allow them to develop a desire to want to know God more and to want to check out what God's got going with them. So right at the very beginning, I want you guys to think whether you're a family doing this or a family that's just with us. Do you ever brag on God to your children? 
I mean, really think about that. Do you ever just take time during the week, you know, sitting at family dinner, riding in the car, going to school, going shopping, going to work, whatever it is, and just take time to brag about all that God's done in your life? Or while you're at family dinner and coming home from work and riding with the kids, maybe to school or on the way home, is that like a time of complaining? Is it a time that we laugh because it's true, isn't it? Is it a time of whining? Is it a time of, oh, poor, poor, pitiful me, and we play our little harp, and we play our little song, and we make our children actually feel sorry for us rather than us feeling sorry for our children? I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just asking you a question. Which way is it? Do we really brag on God? Or maybe this. Do we ever share with them what, what God's answered in our prayer life? That we've prayed and that God has sought enough from us to actually answer, that God has done something for us. Because see, what Moses is thinking right now is that if the children who did not witness the Exodus never hear about God and what God's done and, and his law and his, his writings and, and, and the history of it, they'll never truly desire a relationship with him. And I think that applies directly to us today. If our children don't hear about the blessings of God, the plans of God, the things of God from us, who they're around the most or should be around the most, then they will never develop a desire to truly want a relationship with God. Later, Solomon writes this, one of the wisest men in, in, in Scripture, and, and he says this, and, and think about this now, because any two people can produce a child. It takes a lot more to train up a child. And here's what he says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, where we'll spend the rest of the day at. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Some translations say start your child out in the right direction. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. The way Christians should be raising their children, the way everybody in this church as a body of believers should be raising our kids should be radically different from the way they're being raised in the world. We should look different. We should talk different. We should probably dress different. Um, everything about what we do should be different because we're not just training our children to be a success in life. We're training our children to be a success in eternity. And I think sometimes as worldly concepts get involved sometimes is that's where we've messed up. We're so focused on our child being successful in the world that we've forgotten what the true definition of success is for a believer. And it's not just the money. It's not just the house. It's not just the car they're going to drive and all that. It's more. So rather than just being concerned with temporary happiness, we as believers should be concerned about eternal happiness. Rather than us being concerned about our child fitting in, Maybe we should be worried about our child getting into the kingdom. Does that make sense? Do we, do we understand how, how big our goal really gets? Scripture doesn't say just say your, your children need training just to say it. It says it because it's a need. God knows our needs. God, God's commands are our needs. You know, so, so when he says a child needs training, he understands that they are knuckleheads in the beginning. And some of them stay knuckleheads for a lot longer. Uh, so they're going to need extensive training. Um, through this. So, so God doesn't command it unless it's something that's actually good for us and that we really need. So, so when it says trainer, parents hear me, because I know a lot of what we may say today kind of sounds harsh and, and tough, but you are not your child's advisor. You are not your child's friend. You are not your child's peer. You are not your child's chauffeur. You are not your child's gift giver. You are your child's trainer, according to scripture. Like it says you are its trainer. The, the whole point of training is to prepare, right? Think about things that we use for training for, you know, in today. We got basic training in the military. We, we have, uh, training wheels on bicycles. 
We have uh, training camp for, for athletes. We have potty training, uh, which some of you may be getting into very quickly. Uh, so training is preparing. So, and my point is this, not that parents are not providers, not that parents are not protectors, but parents, if you only see yourself as a provider and as a protector, but you fail to see yourself as a preparer and a trainer, you're going to fail in your ultimate job of raising children that are going to be godly children in this world. So I, I want you to ask yourself right now and just think, don't answer this one out loud. because Some of us wouldn't have good answers. What are you really preparing your children for? Some of us that aren't doing this today, what have we been preparing our children for? What are we really training them for? Because I'm going to be honest, like I say, we don't really like this part. The best trainers, man, they're the tough ones. If you're a physical trainer and your patient or your client goes home happy about what you guys did, you probably suck at your job because they should hate you. They should have every sore muscle. They should feel miserable. You know, They should not like you that much. I was just talking with Sabrina the other night while they ran three miles. I ran like half a mile. Um not a runner. Oh, uh, yeah. But but we finished and, and I finished at the finish line starting at my house and not going to the stop sign and back um, like Paxson did. But but what we finished and we were joking about, you know, when she was in basic training as a Marine and, and the stories that she told were all stories that I would have hated. You know, they were all about, well, we went on a five mile jog and then the guy decided to go two more miles. And I was like, I'd punch that guy in the throat like it, it just wouldn't have worked out good for us. Or or she would tell a story about how we were on this one. And they had the option to take this path that they told us was shorter, but nobody took it. So we just kept on running on the longer path. I was like, I would have took the shorter path. Like if I was there, I would have helped you out. Like this would not have been a thing. But all the stories she was telling was stories about the hard moments. Now, I know if you've been in the military, there are good moments, too. There's a brotherhood there that is unbelievable. There, there's awesome things that you. But some of the things you remember are the hard moments. Even playing football, the coaches that I love the most were the guys who were the hardest on us. You know, the, those moments when, when, when they, they just, they were rough on you and they were tough on you because they wanted to push you, you know, to the next level. So think about this, parents. While we may not like some of the stuff that Proverbs, uh, 22, 6 is actually going to say because this word that Solomon uses goes much deeper, we need to understand that we need to trust in the ways of the Lord. Because if we trust in His ways, His ways are greater than anything we could ever begin. So much like this, because here's what we do. Come here, Pac-Man. We do this. We're, we're all about wanting to trust God, right? I mean, we're all crazy about, you know, I trust God because God is is great and, and God is awesome. And I need you to face this way. You need to obey me, okay? I'm trying to teach about parenting, and you should you should obey your parent, okay? All right, thanks. Yeah, so, so you know, we, we do this. I'm putting you in a good spot, I promise. We, we do this, but here's the problem. We say we want to trust God and, and when we talk about trusting God. We talk about all this and we say it, but here's sometimes where we mess up. Like we say, Oh, I believe God would catch me if I fall. And, and, and God says, okay, well just fall and trust me. So, so fall, son, and I'll catch you. And this is the response we have with God, though, is it not? We fall. We go face first into the ground and then we blame God. God, I thought you were going to catch me. Here's what God is saying to us. Son, I'm behind you. You have to fall in the direction I tell you to fall. Do you understand this? And when we do, son, fall. Then dad will catch us. Okay. 
But when we when we fall in the wrong direction, don't be quick to jump and blame God wrong when you're not walking his way. He said, I've given you my word so that you can follow my word and learn the direction to go. And when you fall going the direction I've trained you to go, I will catch you. It's okay. So hear me, parents, because a lot of these words, some of these words we really won't like. But hear me. It's okay for you to be afraid of some of these things that Solomon is actually saying in this verse. Because you trust in God. And if you trust in God and you are going God's way, he will work out the details. Okay, so let's look at this thing. And here's what I mean by him saying so much more. The the Hebrew word for this word train. That's what we're going to be the entire time. I called you trainers and I think you are. We are. We all are. You know, the Hebrew word here is Hanak. Now, Hanak, it it means this. It, it, It goes so much further than just the word train. It means to narrow, to initiate, to discipline. And to dedicate. So that's four words I think fall right in line directly. If you were a note taker, because I probably pronounced it wrong, it is C H A N A K. All right. So so keep that in mind, because you will never ever hear me pronounce hardly anything right. All right. So let's look at this first one. Here, here's the point. What what he's saying is so much deeper than just train up a child in a certain way. Look at the first word, to narrow. Well, what does to narrow mean? Narrow means that something is smaller at one point than it is at another point, right? It means it has limits. It means it has the actual definition. Something that is smaller in width or not as wide is considered to be narrow. So the word carries with it this, a limited amount, margins, constraints. What, what's Solomon really saying then if we look at this word, if he's using this part of it? He's saying, parents, set up boundaries and limitations for your children. Now, that doesn't sound... All that great. None of your kids are going to be like, yeah, mom's got boundaries and limitations for me. This is great. No, but your boundaries and your limitations are going to be awesome for the better of the future of your child. And society has done this. Now, we shouldn't be doing everything society's way, but even society's done it. How old do you have to be to drive? I didn't know anymore, so that's why. Yeah, 16. All right. You got to be 21 to drink. You got to be you know, 18 to, to smoke, I think, still. and But we've set up all these 21. Well, good. You should never smoke anyway or drink. So hear that. Right. <laughs> but but society has done all this stuff to set up these restrictions, you know, uh, along the way to narrow the way. Right. So if society has done it at that level, shouldn't we as Christian parents, as followers of Christ, be be narrowing our children even more? Like, shouldn't we take it to, to a whole nother level? Meaning this, parents, and I know this isn't going to be popular for a lot of what society teaches. You should know everything your child's doing. You should. You should be as nosy and and, and as in their business as you could possibly be. Okay? And I don't think that's wrong to be that way. You should know what friends they hang out with. You know, you should know what they listen to, what they watch on TV. You should limit what they have access to on the Internet. You should narrow their way for them. So that as they get older, and here's what we're doing. We're we're limiting them at certain ages because the older they get, the more freedoms they get. That makes sense. That's perfect. But if we have it limited, then then there's no hope in them making better choices the older they get. So if we narrow the way in the beginning, hopefully if we've done our job, they'll have more information to be able to make choices the right way. Okay, for the right stuff. Jesus says this, considering that word. Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that are able to find it. He's flat out saying like the way of Christ is not popular. 
Like it's going to be a smaller crowd. If you're going with the majority of the crowd, you're probably going the wrong direction. Okay? The, the, the way that we should be leading should look very different. We said it should be radically different. And if we want different results from what the world is getting, then shouldn't we be doing different things? I don't know about you, but I'm not very happy with, with the results the world is getting in the way they're raising their families and their children and the statistics. So if we want to be different, we got to do things different. Jesus is saying that the, the way of kingdom life is narrow. It's smaller. But the way that destruction leads to it is wide. So if you want your kid to, to stay with the wide and the big group, it'll lead them to destruction. So think about it. Think about the boundaries that you have. I did a, I was looking at a, a study on inmates and, uh, y'all know, uh, John, he does a lot of, a lot of prison ministry and he was sharing with me some stuff. And, and here's what I found. And, and this to be true because you ask yourself this and think about this before I say this. The friends that you had that didn't have boundaries growing up, where are they really? I'm going to be honest. My parents were jerks. I hated them. Hated. Past tense, right? They, they, they were just mean. They had rules. They had regulations. They had time periods I had to be home. They had things I could do and not do. They had people they didn't want me to go out with. I mean, they were just mean, cruel people. Right? I don't know why they wanted to ruin my popularity as a teenager, but they tried and they succeeded in certain levels. Okay. But but here's the thing. All my friends that didn't have those boundaries set up, I can honestly say I don't know if one of them next to getting a relationship with Jesus and totally having a transformation. I don't know if one of them are actually successful in life. They're all miserable for the most part. They're all leading the same life that they were leading for the children they have now. And it's a it's a it's a path to destruction. So so this study on on prison inmates, it says this. And I think these are men that are in prison. And they said this. I didn't have any boundaries growing up, which I think is what led to me getting into trouble. That's about as honest as you can get, right? I didn't have boundaries. I got in trouble. Parents, our primary job is to protect our children. And as we do things, we have, as we protect them, we have to narrow their way. We have to narrow their way in hopes that as they get older, we've been raised in the right way, that they will make the right choices. Okay, look at number two, this next word. So not only narrow, but to initiate. To initiate. To initiate means this, to bring into practice, to teach the fundamentals of. Okay. Most parents understand that our job is to prepare our children to leave house. That should have been, yeah, Mitch should have been not more than one. Let me, let me say that one more time. Your primary goal as a parent, hopefully, is to prepare your children to be successful when they leave your house. <laughs> right? All of you that are here today live with your parents as long as possible. They love you. Hey, my three, I'm training you guys to get out. Right? And, and, no, I want my house to be one they can come back to. But, but here's the thing. I want them to feel good when they leave, like successfully ready to prepare the road to start their families and the things that they're going to do. So and we, and we do this with with little lessons. And, and what I'm hoping we do is what God, I'm thinking, is hoping that we do is that we're shaping the responses of our children as they learn. Think about the simple things that we do. An example would be we tell our children, hey, don't play in the street. If you're going to cross the street, you look both ways before you cross the street. What's one of the first things older siblings, older cousins, or even parents then teach their children? Hey, don't play in the street. Look both ways before you cross the road. So these are things that we've developed that is a natural response, you know, to them. The, the other definition for initiate is to teach the fundamentals of. Well, your, your children need to learn how to clean, cook, drive a car. Evidently, everybody in this church needs to learn how to drive a car by praise reports. Um, you need to... You need to have good study habits. You need to have, you know, good hygiene. We should be training our kids to be successful in all these things. We should be initiating 
this stuff for them so that as they learn slowly, and they and some of them slower than others, but as they learn slowly and the things begin to intensify in their life and they get older and they begin to smell themselves, they'll realize, hey, these are things that mom and dad were trying to teach me to be able to do right, okay? So so think about this, this initiate type of thing. We want to initiate things in them that's going to be right. So what else are we initiating? Well, spiritually, shouldn't we be initiating reading Bible time? Shouldn't we be initiating prayer time? Shouldn't we be able to initiating how to pick out friends and how to pick out maybe a, a potential spouse 30 or 40 years from now? Uh, you know, so think about those things when, when that word initiate comes in, because I think Solomon would have definitely known that would have been part of the interpretation of that word. So I think he was getting to that. And then here we get to this one. Here's one I know a lot of us won't like the world doesn't like, but it means to discipline. To discipline. Never I mean, keep this in mind. Remember, like I illustrated with, with Paxson. You trust in his way and he'll take care of the results, correct? He will catch you if you're trusting and following in his way. Did I really hate my parents? No. But here's the funny thing about discipline. It'll give you that emotional feeling that makes you think differently. So sure, there were moments where I didn't like my mom and dad very much. But here's the reality of it. They disciplined me in the way that they saw it best in accordance with scripture. And because of that, it guided me away from the corruption and got me where I needed to be today. Okay? Crystal will tell you very quickly, and she might get mad that I confess this, but when we first started dating, she thought my mom was crazy. <laughs> who in the world has a, has a, as a kid who's graduated still has a time they're supposed to be home, which I didn't follow all the time, which is probably wrong. But you know, you, you think about all that stuff and, and things as simple as like, you're supposed to make your bed still and, and you should put up your clothes still and, and, and all that normal stuff that, that kids should be doing, you know, but at that time we didn't have kids. So we thought we knew how to rule the world and we thought all those ideas were crazy. Now we say all the time, well, we know we can leave all the kids with, with, with mom and dad because they will handle it for sure. Although they are not less lenient now with the grandkids. But anyway, so, so this one turns out to be good. All right. Trust in God's plan. Now, here's what scripture says in regards to discipline. And remember, tough trainers are usually the best trainers. All right. Discipline should not only be corrective, it should be preventative. Hear me on that. It's not just to correct. It's to prevent. Okay, here's what that means. When you punish a child, it shouldn't just be to correct the mistake they made. It should be to help them choose next time to make a better choice. Right. So you give them a red hiney. If that's your form of punishing, by the way, not that I'm against it or anything, but scripture does say certain ways we should punish things. Right. But, you know, you do that one because they think about it. You know, if you get if you get a ticket and now that we're adults, if you get a ticket, your insurance goes up. Right. I kind of stopped speeding now because I'm sick of high insurance. Uh, it prevented me from speeding. So the, the discipline, you know, has done this. So punishment has the ability to steer the person not only away from, from things, but to keep them from ultimate destruction. Here's what Solomon says earlier in the book of Proverbs chapter 5. He's teaching an example of someone who didn't listen to what they were taught. And he says this, 12 through 14. How I have hated instruction. A lot of us have probably been at that moment where we had that feeling, right? And he says, and my heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin. What he's saying is a guy who had chosen not to listen to instruction, had hated being corrected, had chose not to listen to the voice and advice of those that were better and, and more advanced than him. And because of that, he was in utter ruin. Why? Because we need 
discipline. Something else he says, uh, chapter 22, 13 through 15. Talking about discipline being both corre- uh, corrective and preventive. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from shield. Well, that, that sounds kind of important to me, right? And by the way, I don't, I don't, you know, there's different levels of this word shield and different ideas. We can all agree that he'd be talking about death right there, okay? So if you're going to rescue your child from death, then, it, then it's a good advice to punish them and use corrective punishment to get them there, right? So, so we correct for the current and we prevent from the future. Not that any way in Scripture, by the way, is promoting abuse or to actually harm your child. You should never take joy in punishing your child too, all right? Please, if you're a parent you're taking joy in punishing your child, you've really messed up along the way, okay? It should be like a, a heart-wrenching moment. But it is meant to literally save your child from utter destruction. All right. So, so here, go look at this again. Back to that study with the, the inmates. Correction and discipline demonstrates love. How do I prove that? Here's what they said. Those same inmates that said that they didn't have guidance growing up. They didn't have boundaries. And that's what led to their, their imprisonment. They stated that they wished they would have been punished as children for it would have kept them out of trouble. But more importantly, it would have proven to me that my parent actually cared about me. Proven that my parent actually cared about me. So that tells me the men sitting in prison that didn't have boundaries, they're also sitting in prison thinking, man, my parents didn't care about me because they didn't think enough to guide me the right direction. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of nothing really worse than a child who's already upset, who's already crying, and then doesn't feel the love and concern of a parent at the moment. Right? So therefore, it's saying then that this discipline would do this. So when we discipline and it's carried out appropriately, guys, Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds this rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Again, not permission to take things to the next level or nothing like that, but corrective behavior adjustments to prevent future bad behavior and purging the foolishness out of our children. You know, scripture and Proverbs, by the way, I mean, by the way, we're talking about Proverbs, so it's not promises. OK, keep, keep in mind that it's two different type of, of things here. But but Proverbs says says things like our children are foolish Meaning that they don't. So in 15 says this foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod that disciplines will remove this far from him. So if you've ever thought, man, my child is foolish, then you need to discipline them to get the foolishness out. Is what scripture's saying, right? So so keep that in mind. Our, our children are going to be foolish, and that's part of childhood. But some of the foolishness needs to be removed. Now here's the sad truth on what we do: we prepare the path for the child instead of the child for the path. Think about that. We prepare the path for the child. Instead of the child for the path. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're in good old give in. So that means if you're getting ready to walk through the woods, you've cleared all the briars, all the tripping, you know, sticks and logs that were down. You've made the smoothest possible path you could make for your child to go down. Why? Because you don't want them to get hurt. Because you care about them if they fall. Not that those things aren't bad, guys. But here's what we've done. If we've prepared the path instead of preparing the child, is that when real life comes and there are thorns and there are limbs and there are potholes, it's going to knock the crap out of them. And they're not going to be able to understand how to handle it. Okay, and we have failed for training them up in the right way. When we make their path trouble-free, pain-free, failure-free, consequence-free, struggle-free, and we let them live like kings and queens, we're setting them up for failure, guys. Again, not to just be mean, but to be honest about what's coming their way to be worried about the things that they're going to have to deal with in reality. 
Adults who can't handle failure, they can't handle consequences, they can't handle responsibility, they can't handle hardship, and they can't handle the struggle, and they can't handle pain because they haven't been trained to deal with that stuff. Now, you be there for them just like God is there for you. But you be there for them and you guide them and train them along this way so that they're equipped and ready to handle stuff. Why? Why? Because we sure didn't face this. Because they didn't face those things as kids, it doesn't mean they're not going to face those things as adults. We need to we need we need to parent for the long term rather than the short term, I guess is the way of saying it. We're so worried about the short term, we've forgotten about the long term. We need to worry less about today's happiness and more about tomorrow's readiness. Right? Look at this last word, and there's where we're really at for today. I think we understand a lot of this stuff. We just need to be reiterated on it. The last thing that, that train means to dedicate. Definition for dedicate. Set apart or to dedicate to. Now, I love that the dictionary has this, this word set apart right there. Because I, I love how to dedicate is this last section of training. Because we've been narrow, we've initiated, and we've disciplined to set them apart to make them different, right? You know what other word in scripture translates out into set apart really good? Holy. Holy. Meaning this, that if we're following those first three steps of this word train, we as parents are making our children holy. How awesome is that, right? I can't think of nothing better than someone to be able to, you know, it's one thing to say you got a good kid or you got a fast kid or you got a smart kid, but how awesome would it be if they look and say, man, you got a holy kid. That would take it to the next level, right? I mean, that's awesome. I've been proud when my boy scores touchdown. I've been proud when my boy sacks a quarterback. I've been proud when they run run distance and, and sprints. And, and I was proud when I watched Haley, you know, win a race and throw a softball and, and, and score a goal and, and all this stuff. I can't imagine how proud I'll be the day they choose to follow Christ on their own. I can't imagine how proud I'll be the older they get. And they say, you know what, I'm going to do things this way because it's what Scripture says and it's what I was trained to do. Right? Those are the moments that we'll be the most proud for, guys. Those are the moments that set us up for the right way. So, so parents today and, and at least four of our families, they've chosen to set their child apart for God. They've chosen to say, you know what, basically like, like Samuel's mom did, I'm giving my child back to God. Not that it's going to save them this moment, but it's saying, God, I'm going to do my very best to raise this child, to watch what I do, to watch what I say, to raise them in a way that will make them hungry for the things of God, that will make them follow out what Moses told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk them as you sit at your house, as you walk on the way, and you lie down, and when you rise up in the morning. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall have them as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You think Moses isn't serious about making sure your children are bathed in scripture? He desires it. God desires. That's why God instilled him to write this stuff. And hear me, parents. Our first responsibility, just like Moses is saying, is to be faithful to God and walk upright. Because what example do they have to follow if we're not doing that part? The second step is then to teach our children, right? Keep this in mind. What we don't teach our children at home will not equip them to handle what will come to them in this world. So if you hadn't taught them and it comes to them, don't be surprised that they can't handle it. They need a foundation they can build on that's going to better them for the future. All right. So so hear this now. And I'm going to ask the, the four families and, and any others that want to join again, you're more than welcome to. I'm asking them to come to the front now. 
So parents, your children, they've each got some vows that they've been able to look at. And think about this. Do you, do you have to get married in public? Not in a big group, but there has to be what? There has to be a witness. I don't care if you go to the courthouse. There has to be a witness, right? Why? Does a couple things. One, it shows how serious it is, right? It, it shows how serious you are about a commitment that you're making when you do something public like that. The other thing it does is, yeah, you got accountability now. You know, you, you've got somebody who's going to look at you and say, man, you remember when dot, dot, dot? You remember when you made this pledge? You remember when you did this? So, so it's no different than for us today. For, for these four families, they're publicly saying, look, we, we are making a step of boldness to truly say what we desire for the life of our children. To truly say what we want to do with, with these babies, boys and girls uh, along this path. And second, it's saying, look, church body, you hold us accountable. But I'm going to take it a step further than that because I believe what, what scripture says is that the church body is held accountable also for making sure these guys get the help they need. Okay? Now, now there's two different types of responsibilities, but it's when you see a struggle, you lend a hand. It's when you know you have advice, you give it. It's when you see a way that you can help and, and maybe ease some of the stuff they're going through, you do so. Because that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be all about. So for today, Reese Elizabeth Baker, Braylon Audrey Mackey, Parker James Mackey, Graceland Kenley Roberts, Grayley Kenna Roberts, and Kennedy Rain Wilson, their parents are choosing to publicly make a profession before you guys with these vows. So parents, if you do, after each vow, Please say I do. Vow number one. Do you dedicate yourself to wholeheartedly pursue your relationship with Christ by trusting in his finished saving work on the cross, depending on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct your life, knowing that the life you model will shape your children even more deeply than the words you say? Scripture says in John 15, 1 through 5, I am the vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. Again, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Each of these parents want to be good parents. But apart from Christ, the reality is we can do nothing good. Understand that? We have a desire to be godly parents. And if we do, then first we've got to develop a growing relationship with Christ. And we've got to continue to keep that relationship growing every day so that our children can see that. So that our children can mimic that. And additionally, this verse kind of reminds us of this. That your identity is not in your fruit. Good kids or bad kids. Your identity is the one who's preparing you to vitally be connected with the fruit. Vow number two. If you're in the audience, this applies for, for parents that, uh, that are married and together. So if you're a single parent, you can still make this vow, vow just a little different. But it says this. Do you dedicate yourself to faithfully pursue a vibrant relationship with your spouse? Sacrificially loving each other, dating each other, prioritizing each other over your work and over your children, and seeking help and guidance from the church family to help your relationship thrive, knowing that one of the very best gifts you can give your children is a joyful, godly marriage. 
Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, don't think you're out though. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To make her holy, cleansing her with washing of the word, water of the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum it up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. This vow is so important, guys, because a great marriage is a powerful picture of the gospel. It is sometimes easier to get to see the gospel lived out in the house through the marriage than it is to ever give a good evangelistic idea to our children. In, in, in a world today where sacrificial love is not natural, seeing this in your homes is vital to your children. It's incredibly powerful for the example it is set with submission, love, respect, and affection on a mutual level. Vow number three. Do you dedicate yourself to actively participate in the church community, investing in people, learning from friends, and using your gifts for the sake of Christ's kingdom, knowing that your children need input and examples from the church family in addition to your family? Ephesians chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. From him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Hebrews 10 adds to it, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some have done, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Parenting is hard. Some of you have already figured that out. Some of you are in for a rude awakening when you figure it out, but you don't have to do it alone. And the sign of reaching out for help, guys, same thing I tell married people this right here. That's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of trust. It's a sign in saying, you know what? God's way says I should be reaching out to my church family when I need the help. It's saying that I trust in his plan and I have faith that however he tells me to do it is the best possible way that I should do it, despite whatever other people think. So don't look at it as a sign of weakness. Think of it as a sign of trust in Christ's plan and faith in doing it his way. All right. Plus. Some of you guys will probably be able to offer great advice to me that I'll need in the future. Vow number four, last one. Do you dedicate yourself to raise your children with biblical love, instruction, and discipline? Will you take every opportunity that life gives you to diligently search and teach your children to learn to love the Lord Jesus, to observe all that he has commanded, knowing that your primary responsibility as a parent is to train your child to be a disciple? Proverbs 22, 6, we read about training. Ephesians 6, 4 adds to it. Fathers, which I think these are talking about all parents, but us dads are worse at this. Don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Timothy says this, and you know that from childhood, you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This vow is important because the goal as Christian parents is to first introduce our child to Jesus to help them learn to love and trust in him, to realize the vital importance of that relationship with him. Can the church help with this? Yes, but it's not the church's responsibility to disciple your child. 
It's your responsibility as parents. Okay? Not that there's one right way to parent because there are very many different ways and parents have to adapt and adjust because every kid is doing things different their own way. But we should be doing everything in our all with teaching them to love God the best that we can. Guys, these are big, big vows because parenting is a big, big deal. I fully believe just like marriage, when we make a public profession before God, before the church body, before one another, the Lord loves these oaths. He values these oaths and he looks at these oaths as seriousness. So I hope you guys do, too. But two more things to remember. Number one, you will fail. Everybody understand that? Church family, do we understand that? We are not perfect. We're not a call to be perfect. That's why we have Christ. That's why we have his grace. That's why we have his mercy. And that's why we have his love. And number two is this. It is Christ's life, death, and resurrection that saves your child, not you. Keep these two things in mind and everything else will fall right into place. Church family, as they stand before you, I believe you carry a vow as well. So if you admit to it, please go do so by saying, I do. Church family and friends, I haven't even given you the vow yet. What are you saying I do to? You're all a bunch of liars. Oh, okay. All right. They, they said they're fully committed. They said I do, guys. You ready? You will empty your wallets. You will sign all the checks you have in your car and leave your debit cards with each of these families as you leave here today. Is there still an I do? Seriousness. Seriousness. Church, family, friends. Will you commit to helping and encouraging these families do these things? Will you hold them accountable and keep them on track? Will you let them cry and also give you advice along the way? If the rest of you guys will stand, I've asked four men to come and pray over each of these families to make this public blessing over these children. You four men should know who you are, I hope. <laughs> and stay standing at the very end. Mitch is going to offer you a, a blessing also over each of them.